There you go. Four punch, five punch, six punch combination. Body shot, body shot. Bang, 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 bang. Telling him not to counter punch. For the next episode of the Fight City podcast, my name is Alden Kodash, and I'm being joined by Michael Carbert of the Fight City, our editor-in-chief. How are you tonight, Michael? I'm doing well, Alden. How are you? I am doing very well. Uh, I was doing a lot better in Saturday until I hit the blackjack table. <laughs> Uh-oh. I uh, lost a little bit of money, but not too much. Not too bad. And it definitely didn't overshadow a great night of fights uh, that me and Josh Izzard covered over at the um, the Hard Rock Casino in Atlantic City. We saw Joe Smith Jr. get his career back on the right track with his big victory over 4-1 to one favorite, Jesse Hart of Philadelphia. Jesse Hart was coming in to try to avenge the loss of his mentor and idol, uh, Bernard Hopkins, even came into the ring with the executioner mask on him. But uh, did not... Idea. Bad yeah. idea, and he, he <laughs> especially with the way he fought. So uh, he uh, he fought like a guy who knew he was in over his head and fighting such a big puncher at light heavyweight in his second fight at light heavyweight, uh, something that I thought the odds makers should have considered a little more strongly before placing such uh, heavy odds against Joe Smith Jr., who's a huge light heavyweight puncher, a guy that uh, was really the only guy I've ever seen hurt Dimitri Bivol in his fight, and he clearly lost that fight. But he had Bivol hurt. He had Sullivan Barrera on the canvas when Barrera was in his prime. Uh, he knocked out Andrew Funfar in a round, a fight that he was a 45 to one underdog in. You know, this is uh, this is a guy that often falls under the cracks, and uh, stated by him in uh, in in the coming interview that we'll feature uh, on this show that you know he was fighting for his career in this fight. So let's hear Joe Smith's words. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to keep that pressure, and uh, I knew it. What were your thoughts about the end of Hopkins' career? You know the story that he made coming here. He wanted revenge. Now you got the two Philly guys on your own. Yeah, I got the two Philly guys, and it feels great. You know, I was hoping to, uh, it would have been nice to get him the same way, but he made it through. <laughs> what do you think about this? Yeah, we can't get everything. What do you think about the split decision, though? What do you think about one of the judges? Way to work, yo, way to work, it's the yeah. same thing anybody else could say. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's a shame. And you know, if the fight would have went the other way, everybody would have an outcry. Mm -hmm. But you need an outcry right now that one judge could even score at that level. It's a disgrace. It's a disgrace. Yeah, I was, uh, I was getting a little nervous for a second in there, but I really felt I won the fight. Joe, it seemed like the last couple of rounds, Jesse was really only relying on his left hand, his left hook. Did you notice that, and uh, did you change up your approach on anyone? I was trying to load up on that left hook a lot, and I realized that. And I was looking to try to slip under it and catch him with one of my own, but, uh, you know, I didn't quite get it there. Joe, did he fight the way you expected him to fight? Yeah, you know, he said he was going to like to get rough with me and come out there. So the first that as soon as the round started, I went to the middle. I was like, I thought you were going to fight me. Yeah. And he's I like, he just kept it moving. You might have answered this already, but uh, who, who are you trying to cut after? Uh, any one of the champions, I would like, you know. Relentless, Joe, relentless. A lot of big names out there. Yeah. We're going to be searching down. And there's a big fight next week. And, uh, you know, 
back uh those are the words of joe smith and also of his manager joe DeGuardia, who stated that this was although a victory for joe smith this was also a near miss uh in a situation where poor officiating in this case judging could have bedeviled uh not only his career but just the fairness of the sport jim kenny his 95 94 score for jesse hart was absurd even by the eyes of hart's promoter bob arum uh terrible score a lot of people spoke out against it as they should jesse hart was not only fighting with one arm uh, i'm not sure if he was injured but he was only using really his left hand throughout the fight and he was running and holding throughout the fight not really doing anything effective, but for some reason, Kenny found a reason to score for him. Uh, I'm hoping your heart didn't drop as much as mine did when Jimmy Lennon Jr. announced split decision, did it? Well, I, you know, I mean, I've been following boxing for a long time, Alden. I mean, um, when it comes to bad scorecards, it's pretty hard to shock me. And I think, you know, it's the same for many for pretty much anyone who who writes about boxing has followed boxing i mean it, it's totally inexplicable um and uh and it's infuriating but but at the same time it's you know it's nothing new um the question is when are the powers of be going to finally step up and do something about this kind of thing i mean i mean it should be it should be cut and dry i mean that kind of scorecard it, it should disqualify that person from judging at all. He should be he should be done. Um, he it it, it it he should be disgraced. Um, but you know, it will be seen as oh he had a bad day at the office, and before you know it, uh, he'll be ringside again. Um, that that's the real problem. That's the real outrage. So, well, it's I mean, a, it's, I, a, it's a sport that. Uh, in the officiating realm, really favors seniority. I mean, we still see Adelaide Bird getting high-level fights. We see Robert Bird getting high-level fights, despite what he did in the uh, Maris Bratis, uh, uh fight uh, in Latvia when he let Bradis get off multiple punches after the bell. Um, you know, I, I don't want to hold officials to such a standard that they can't make mistakes and uh, and and disgrace them permanently after it. But when they do impact a fighter's career, his, uh, his his ability to support his family, especially after putting some his life on the line, essentially, uh, I, I think there should be real consequences. And I don't think they should be put into big fights uh, immediately after. I think there should be a proper investigation. I think there's been a good examples in the past of such when when uh, New York did a state Senate investigation of the Lewis Holyfield one fight. Uh, but I think that should be consistently enforced. 
rather than wait for the biggest times and the most impactful outcomes to spawn this kind of a, of a deep dive into the sport. Well, I, I completely agree. And, uh, but, but how, let's, let's just assume for a moment that the judge in question was bribed. Let's just assume that for a second. Okay. We're, yeah. we have no grounds to believe that that's the case. Um, but let's just assume that. How are you ever going to prove that? How are you going to have, what investigation would be effective enough, thorough enough to, to provide evidence to show that that's the case? I mean, you've got to have a proper system set up whereby there's no conflicts of interest and, and certain standards, professional standards are set and adhered to. And then when somebody does do something like this, there's serious consequences. Right now, that's not the case. And, you know, you said, oh, maybe, maybe, you know, he had a bad night. He made a mistake. We're not talking one mistake. If you scored, uh, you know, more than a couple rounds, uh, not for Smith uh, Jr., that's, that's, you know what I mean? Like, like we're talking mistake after mistake after mistake. He had yeah. to, he had to, he had to screw up on at least what four five six rounds out of that well fight? he he had the fight um well he gave six rounds to jesse hart <laughs> he gave six rounds to jesse hart 95 94 for for hart uh hart was knocked down so there's the extra point so yeah well um, could a serious scorecard give hart more than two rounds you know three rounds maybe well unfortunately i gave hart four rounds but <laughs> Representing oh, the fight city. I, I, my, uh, my, okay. So it was, uh, in, in my opinion, there were some swing rounds, but there was no doubt that Joe Smith Jr. won the majority of the rounds clearly. Uh, I think that's another subtlety when it comes to boxing officiating is that there you could have a shutout scorecard with every round close. Uh, however, I don't think this was the case at all here. I think there was at least six, uh, if not more, clear rounds that I was seeing from my position in the third row of press row uh, that I would give to Joe Smith. I don't know how a ringside judge, granted probably sitting in another position than I was, uh, and only seeing that angle of the ring throughout, another important point, could still see six of the ten rounds going for Hart, given uh, really the lack of initiative to win that fight. He was fighting on the back foot throughout. Um, he didn't look like he was eager to engage. He was fighting with one hand for one reason or another. I'm not sure if it's been reported yet that he was injured going in. Uh, he was pointing to his hand after as if he was, but he didn't look like a guy who fought to win the majority of the rounds. And I thought he clearly lost the majority of the rounds. So even though I had it six, four, uh, I still can't excuse six, four, the other way. Okay. Well, Based on uh, on the reports that I've read and 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 the the reactions to that scorecard, I mean, it seems pretty clear that that Smith Jr. won with plenty of room to spare. Is that safe to say? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. So so, I mean, that's the main point here, and that and that and that everyone saw the fight pretty much the same way. So. Yeah, when a judge when a judge uh, turns in a stinker of a scorecard like that, there should be repercussions. I mean, I mean, judging this is the other thing that drives me crazy about these things. In my opinion, 
judging fights is not rocket science. It's not, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to go to, you don't have to take a special course to figure out who wins a fight or not. I mean, you know, at the end of the round, which guy would you rather be? You know, I mean, some, yeah, most, I mean, there there are many there are many cases where there are levels between the fighters, and with the exception of the rounds that a fighter takes off, it's pretty clear who wins the round on that on that basis. Uh, but when a fighter is taking a round off, or when a fight's just that competitive that you have to be keeping track in your head for three minutes of the punches landed clean, clean landed punches. Uh, any lapse in judgment, if it's a fast-paced fight especially, can uh, cause you to be in catch-up mode and maybe cause you to panic. And um, you might you might score a round that everybody sees one way or everybody has a, has a, thinks goes one way, another way, uh, because there is a lot of pressure on the judges. And, of course, that's no excuse because right here, as you mentioned, this is, you know, a, a repeated blunder. You know, this is getting the getting the uh just just not seeing the nature of the fight unfold because the nature of the fight was that joe smith jr was the ring general in all 10 rounds there were three or four rounds where he stepped off the gas pedal and wasn't throwing as much and jesse hart was using his jab properly and uh he might have stole those rounds but he still maintained the upper hand throughout so you know yeah so things to consider yeah, well, I mean, it's a serious issue. If 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 it's very clear that one fighter got the better of the other, and you have a judge, an official judge who's paid to do his job, can't see that, it's a serious problem. And the and the and and of course, what makes it even more serious is that this happens all the time, unfortunately. Now let let's now let me ask you a question, Alden. Based on what you saw, and you were watching the fight, I believe much more carefully than i was um how did joe smith jr look to you and and what did this fight tell us about whether or not he can rebound a bit and be a threat again at the top level uh of the light heavyweight division well i don't i don't think anything really changed i mean joe smith jr is joe smith jr he's a guy that is uh probably the second strongest fighter at 175 right behind better be this guy is just he's a He's a union laborer. Uh, he kind of just hits like an ox and uh, doesn't really have much, much, uh, much fancy skill behind him. Uh, but he knows what he's good at, and he just lays into you and he punishes you to the best of his ability. And you know he's been able to hurt the highest level uh, boxer in the light heavyweight division, in my opinion, and Dmitry Bivol. So he's a threat to anyone. I mean, even better Biev was knocked down by a lesser fighter named, uh, Cal, uh, Callum Smith. Yes. I think I have his name right. Uh, last year. So, you know, everybody has kinks in their armor and Joe Smith, he's going to be right in your face to expose them. Uh, but based on what you guys heard in the interview recent, uh, that I just played, you know, the most important thing is that this shows the world that he's still alive. You know, he's still in light heavyweight contention. He's still eligible for these big fights, uh, particularly against guys like Alida Alvarez, who was mentioned as a possible opponent if he gets by his next fight this coming weekend against Michael Seals. Maybe even Jean Pascal, uh, if they can get beyond the whole PBC uh, versus top rank issue. Uh, or even the champions. Uh, maybe he's a fun fight for Better Biev. 
But the the point is, his career is still alive, and there's still fun fights to make, and there's some air of uncertainty in him because of the fact that Joe Smith Jr., in my opinion, is the second hardest puncher in the division, uh, and the second strongest fighter in the division. He's a very physical fighter, uh, so he he's easy to overlook because he's not a very well polished fighter. But he doesn't need to be. He doesn't care to be. And uh, he's just Joe Smith. And good for him. I'm happy that he got the benefit of the doubt from two of the three judges who saw the nature of the fight unfold. Uh, Unfortunately, um, the third judge, Jim Kenny, did not. Uh, But at the same time, I think this is getting the kind of notoriety from the levels of the sport who have spoken out on social media. And I commend them for it. That being Al Bernstein and top-ranked promoter and CEO... Bob Arum, who is flat out saying this is not an acceptable scorecard, even though it didn't put the it didn't shake up the boxing world because it didn't impact a result. You know, quite frankly, I think this is the kind of attention that could have been uh, given after the Sugar Ray Leonard versus Marvin Hagler fight when one judge had Sugar Ray Leonard winning 10 out of 12 rounds. That was completely absurd, but overlooked because of the fact that, well, for a lot of people, the right man won. The comeback kid, the f- almost five-year layoff, uh, he won the fight by split decision, Sugar Ray Leonard. But one judge had it, 10 rounds to two for Leonard. Uh, and that kind of just uh, gets soft-shouldered over time. But in this case, it isn't. And I'm, I'm happy that it's getting the kind of notoriety that it is. So. Okay, one vote here for Jean Pascal versus Joe Smith Jr. I think that would be an <laughs> awesome fight. Oof. Be, I think that would be potential fight of the year. Yeah. Uh, so let's probably both go down. <laughs> let's have, and you know that would be a matchup between the FightCity.com's fighter of the year for 2016, mm-hmm. which is Joe Smith Jr., huh. uh, versus uh, the author of the 2019 upset of the year. Uh, we kind of bucked the trend. Most people were going with uh, Ruiz versus Joshua, and we went with uh, Pascal versus Brown. Uh, great matchup. Uh, can't miss action fight. And, of course, it's not going to happen. But Well, I mean, I don't know everything about Jean Pascal's relationship with Aram, or excuse me, um, PBC and Heyman. I don't know if there's any ironclad contract there, if he's a free agent to fight where he wants. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure from what you tell me about him that he wouldn't be the one to get in the way of a fight against Joe Smith Jr. He's you know, still willing to fight the best uh, even when the odds are against him and going into his fight against Marcus Brown and even Badu Jack, the odds were definitely stacked against him. Nobody thought he had a chance in hell to beat Marcus Brown, who uh, he did beat and won the upset of the year from the Fight City uh, for that. But against Joe Smith Jr., I, I think I think we are looking at a candidate for fight of the year in 2020 so far. Yeah, I, I think it would be an amazing fight. Kind of a, a knockout, dragout kind of thing. Because Joe Smith Jr. has been hurt before. Uh, <laughs> and we know Jean Pascal has. Uh, and, you know... You know, they both, uh, they're battle-tested enough that, um, yeah, I think we would be in for quite a rumble in the 175 division. But uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, and there's plenty of other fascinating fights for both of them at 175. It's a really hot division. Uh, it's a division that I hope doesn't get obstructed by politics. 
I know that the two biggest names at 175 don't have any political hurdles between them, that being Better Biev with Top Rank and um, Bivol with DAZN. Uh, they should be able to unify potentially later this year once they get around mandatories, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but yeah, when it comes to the second tier of light heavyweights, I hope nothing gets in the way of that. Uh, but speaking of light heavyweights, um, one of the most uh, remarkable uh, achievements, I guess you could say, in the light heavyweight division of recent years would be Andre Ward. Moving up to 175, uh, getting a rather questionable decision over Sergei Kovalev, but then in the rematch, stopping Kovalev. Um, Ward has since retired, but as I'm sure you've heard, uh, Alden, Sports Illustrated has just named Andre Ward as the fighter of the decade. Well, what do they know? Uh, did they have a fighter of the decade in nineties and two thousands? Good or is question. This their, is this their first shot in the boxing realm? Good question. That, I, I have no idea. I do not recall. Hmm. Uh, but, uh, as you know, I wrote a, a rather impassioned piece about who I think should be the fighter of the decade. I, I personally don't believe there's really much question about it. It should be, uh, Roman Gonzalez, Chocolatito, um, uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, we're getting a lot of discussion still about who rightfully should hold that title, who, who is the fighter of the decade for the 2010s. Uh, can, what are your thoughts, Alden? I mean, certainly you brought light to Roman Gonzalez being in contention for that honor. Uh, a lot of people are too, uh, short-sighted to really see past Roman Gonzalez's shaky end to the 2010s when he was stopped by Sharissa Katsura and Visay. Uh, but really, I mean, that was an artifact, if anything, of just being way too heavy uh, or b- way too small to compete at 115 pounds. I mean, this is a guy that came up from straw weight. He was a minimum weight champion uh, yes. all the way up to 115. And, you know, although those weight differentials don't seem like much, three, four pounds in some cases, uh, for guys of that stature, they really mean a lot. And Roman Gonzalez was going up against a lot at 115 pounds. And he still arguably won the first fight against Soaring Visay, a strong as hell champion. Uh, and he won his first appearance at 115 against Quadra. So your case that he fought more often, he fought very good fighters, Algayo Estrada being one of them. Uh, and he unified... Uh, well, he moved up several divisions and, and won titles. Uh, it's definitely true. I mean, Roman Gonzalez did a lot, and he was recognized as the Ring Magazine Pound for Pound Fighter of the Year pretty unanimously once Floyd Mayweather retired uh, in late 2015. I mean, he was the heir apparent to the throne. Even Floyd Mayweather said it himself. He's the best fighter. Um, the thing is, when Floyd Mayweather and Manny Pacquiao were waiting to fight each other for five years. Roman Gonzalez was making uh, making history, really. I mean, he was representing Nicaragua, carrying the throne from Alexis Arguello, uh, fighting uh, in a t- tremendous manner against great fighters. Very easy to overlook guys in that division. And unfortunately for this day and age as the boxing fans, it's very easy to overlook fighters with a loss, uh, especially a knockout loss. And... Um, 
unfortunately, that kind of uh, made people forget about the fact that he was so dominant for the better part of the 2010s. Uh, that being said, there were still plenty of other tremendous, tremendous accomplishments in the 2010s. Uh, Andre Ward obviously did a lot in the 2010s. Floyd Mayweather did a lot. You can say the same about Manny Pacquiao. Uh, Canelo might be a little bit too young, but these are the kind of mainstream names that you see. Uh, So, of course, you're going to get challenged by the diehard fans of these mainstream attractions, uh, why their fighter wasn't considered fighter of the decade. But it certainly opened a discussion that people were not having. Yeah, well, I'm in a way, I think Sports Illustrated saying that Andre Ward is the fighter of the decade is, on the one hand, kind of laughable. But on the other hand... I welcome it because, as you say, it kind of opens up the discussion more. Because prior to this, I would say most people who who are wanting to to uh, debate about this and don't feel that uh, Roman Gonzalez deserves it, I would say the vast majority are saying it's Floyd Mayweather's prize. Floyd Mayweather is the fighter of the decade. Some of them, no no doubt, remembering that the previous decade it was Manny Pacquiao. And, mm. and Floyd Mayweather was not too happy when he didn't get the fighter of the decade prize and instead of went, it went to Manny Pacquiao. The yeah. problem is that the high-profile prize that's given out is from the Boxing Writers Association of America. They're, yeah. they're, I don't know of anyone else other than, say, Sports Illustrated, who's very high-profile and, and, and gets a lot of attention, who has a fighter of the decade award. And so what's a bit uh, disturbing is that the, the BWAA, uh, they've got their nominations out for Fighter of the Decade. Well, Roman Gonzalez isn't even a nominee. Mm-hmm. And instead, Vladimir Klitschko is. Figure that one out, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, Vladimir Klitschko would be there for some of the same reasons that Roman Gonzalez. I mean, you could think of some similarities between the two actually in the sense that they were so dominant that people forgot about them until they lost <laughs> and then people were quick to cast them out uh yeah, but at but the same time know. roman gonzalez was doing it in a much more skillful manner multiple divisions against very very good fighters and not you know bryant jennings for example um so that that's the counterpoint but again that's the discussion um well, Klitschko, Klitschko, you could argue, at least much of his accomplishments came in the last decade, the previous decade. Um, you know, but I, I mean, yeah, you can make a case. There, there, there's some, there's some achievements there, no question. But I don't think he he had a decade to stack up to to any of the other nominees. And and again, the fact that Roman Gonzalez is not a nominee as far as the boxing writers of uh, of America are concerned, uh, I think I think that's a huge oversight. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm glad in a way that Andre Ward is now being named the fighter of the decade because it just, it just on the one hand, it shows how these awards are always kind of preposterous to begin with, but also <laughs> that, you know, it widens the field. There's more, there's more to debate, more to discuss, and, and there's valid cases that can be made for a number of fighters, um, so th- so that's all to the good. But uh, yeah, I, I as I as I made clear in the, in my essay, um, 
I think that it's an airtight case. Chocolatito is really the guy who achieved more than any other professional prize fighter um, in, the, in the past 10 years. So we had Chocolatito as the Fight City's fighter of the decade. Uh, for fighter of the year, we had Naoya Inoue, who is really making a huge wave for himself in the lower weight divisions, very similar to how Chocolatito was. I mean, it's a little bit bigger, but not much. I mean, his first title was at 108 pounds, if I'm not mistaken, and he just carries his uh, his power and his size and his presence a lot better than Chocolatito in these higher weight divisions. I'm talking 115 and 118. Uh, he was also the winner of the fight of the year against Nonito Donaire, a thrilling fight. Um, so I guess we'll shift the conversation over to Naoya Inoue and uh, what case he's making as a potential all-time great uh, in years coming. Well, I feel I feel that we got it right. I feel that Inoue is the fighter of the year. Uh, I know that most are picking Canelo Alvarez, and there's definitely a strong case that can be made for for Canelo. But um, I see I see something really interesting happening. I mean, in a way, this redeems a decision we made uh, a few, uh, several years back. In 2014, Inoue was our fighter of the year. And we, we got a little bit of flack for that. I mean, at that point in time, a lot of people hadn't even heard of this guy. Yeah. Uh, so this is the second time that Inoue has been the Fight City's fighter of the year. And if you look back over, over five years now... I mean, anyway, is on his way. He's not maybe quite there yet, but he's on his way to establishing himself as as a legitimate all-time great fighter. And and this past year is is would be seen as a huge step forward in that campaign. Now, the frustrating thing is all of our fight fighter of the year nominees only fought twice. Everybody, it's it's like the two fight club. Nobody fights more than twice. So so in a way, all you had to do to decide who you liked as fighter of the year was decide, okay, whose two wins were the most impressive or most significant against another another guy's two wins. And <laughs> what I liked about Inoue's two wins is the first win was an absolute dominant performance, a blowout, you know, against a undefeated title holder. Inoue just demolished him. He yeah. was too good. And and it's not just power with Inoue. It's also skill, his technical skill. And uh, and then the second uh, win was something altogether different. It was an absolute war, everybody's fight of the year against Nonito Donaire. And what is particularly significant, in my opinion, uh, and, uh, and in the opinion of, of uh, Neil Crane, who wrote the article for us, um, what's particularly significant is the fact that Inoue had to overcome some serious adversity to secure that win. Not only did uh, Nonito Donaire give, give one of the best performances of his career in that fight, but he also landed a huge left hook in the second round that sliced open Inoue's eye, and then we found out after the fight, fractured Inoue's orbital bone. Uh -huh. So Inoue fought for 10 rounds 
in a, in a hellacious battle, a slugfest, he fought 10 rounds with a fractured orbital bone. I mean, I don't think enough is being made of this. I mean, that's a, that's a heroic feat. If, if you know, uh, much is made of Muhammad Ali um, allegedly going 10 rounds with a broken jaw against Ken Norton back in 1973. Well, this is on the same scale. This is on the same level, I think. And, uh, and in Ali's case, he lost. Well, in Inouye's case, he won. Um, so I, I think, I think uh, it's, it's everyone's, or I would say most people's fight of the year, Inouye versus Donaire. And um, when, you, when you really take a close look at the fight and how it unfolded, I mean, you've you've got to tip your hat to to anyway. I mean, it, the monster really showed us something significant in that fight. It, it was That's, the first time he was tested in yes, that manner. Yes. Uh, and and the thing that people overlook is the fact that well, actually, not as many over people overlook it as I th- as I would have imagined because Donaire fought so well. He showed us glimpses of the Nonito Donaire back in 2012 that scored a fearsome knockout over Fernando Montiel at that same weight, bantamweight. He used that same left hook to turn Fernando Montiel into Simon Brown versus Vincent Petaway. Right. <laughs> Knocked out, punching, thinking he was still in the fight while he was on the on the canvas. I mean, that kind of a fearsome knockout with that same shot. Uh, that same shot you had, in a way, walk through, uh, suffer a, a broken orbital, and you could probably see why uh because donaire is just that vicious of a puncher at that weight and he showed even despite uh some shaky losses in the interim since that fight at higher weights when he is back down at 118 taking things seriously he is a force to be reckoned with and uh he was definitely no slouch against in he was just Absolutely. a uh he was he was someone that brought the best out of in and he's someone that could beat most Anybody else at 118 pounds, um, not a fighter that was coming off a fluke over Ryan Burnett, as many thought was the case. You know, this is a serious, very impressive victory for Inouye. So in that sense, uh, the case for Inouye is bolstered. But, you know, we also had a very strong year by Canelo Alvarez. Uh, The one fighter that I think should have gotten at least one award, and I know I fought for him a little bit for fight of the year, was Josh Taylor. Uh, I thought his fight against Regis Progre was the best fight of the year because of uh, pure competition and and pure the, the the number of momentum swings. It didn't have as much drama as Donito Donaire versus Naoya Inouye uh, because there wasn't a knockdown. Neither fighter was seriously hurt, but it did feel like Inouye was comfortably ahead and 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 was headed towards a victory for much of the fight against Donaire. It seemed like uh 117-111 was an appropriate scorecard whereas with Josh Taylor and Regis Progre, you know, these two were constantly shifting momentum. They was fight at such a high level skill-wise. Uh and Josh Taylor came out with the victory and very recently he just signed with top rank which means that we could be looking at a unification for all four belts at 140 pounds with jose ramirez later this year a phenomenal fight and uh, a very good move on josh taylor's part if he can get out of legal hurdles with his previous matchmaker and promoter um and uh, and live ever, happily ever after with top rank because at 140 that is top ranks division no uh, pbc negative influence there and uh, not only that, 
at 140, we're looking at the rise of Teofimo Lopez and Devin Haney in the near future because these are two lightweights that really shouldn't be lightweights and are probably headed towards 140 pounds sooner than later uh, once they um, fight Lomachenko or what have you. Uh, so I, I think Josh Taylor, if he decides to stay at 140, which I really think he should, uh, he might be looking at some year-end awards in years to come. Uh, I know he was a bit of a near-miss for this year, but I think um, someone to really look out for. Absolutely, and and I agree with you 100%. And Taylor got some very strong consideration from me personally. Um, but, you know, it goes back to the activity level. I mean, yeah. Taylor was nominated for Fighter of the Year. But all these guys, they only fought twice. Yep. I mean, we need we need guys to step up. You want to be fighter of the year, you got to step up. And if yep. you're if you're only going to fight two or three times a year, then you got to really make those two or three fights count. And you know what I would like to see is sooner than later is Taylor Pro Grade Two. I mean, that was a fantastic fight. Let's why not run it again? I mean, it doesn't make sense really to have Inoue Donaire too. I mean, I mean, Donaire. Let's face it. He, you know, he's he's nearing the sunset. But yeah. Taylor like Pro Greg. I mean, why couldn't why couldn't that be? Why couldn't we have a chapter two, a chapter three? Why couldn't they that be? Boxing a, boxing's changed though. I mean, it's not really a rematch friendly sport as it once was. Not really that long ago either. I mean, when Jermaine Taylor beat Bernard Hopkins in 2005, there was an immediate rematch after that. Now the only immediate rematches we see are the ones that are dictated in the contract, like Andy Ruiz versus Joshua too. You know, top top ranked CEO Bob Arum has spoken out against uh, the lack of public demand for rematches. Their promotional firm is not huge on rematches, is his words years back. I uh, think that's wrong. I think it's wrong. Come on, I agree with you. Taylor versus Progray was one of the best fights of the year. Are you telling me that if they didn't run it back within the next six months? it wouldn't be even bigger. I think it would be because everybody would be thinking about the first fight. And, yeah. and, and, and how is that a bad career move? Win or lose, it's not a bad career move for either fighter. Because, because I mean, I mean we've, got to, we've got to get fighters to, to look at the bigger picture and be a little more ambitious and for, not, for the good of their careers and for the sport. And uh, if, I, if, I'm, if I have any say in Josh Taylor's career... That's a, I'm 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 penciling that fight in. We give Progray a rematch. That's a huge money fight. That's a that's a that's a major event. Why not? What's what's the case against it? Well, first, Josh Taylor has a mandatory uh, mandated by the WBA, and then near future, uh, according to Dan Raphael of ESPN, I got a chance to speak with him briefly. Uh, so I, I guess he might not be able to get around that if he has ambitions of being a unified 140-pound champion and not get stripped of one of his belts. Uh, also, I mean, the first fight was very physical. Uh, both guys took a tremendous amount of punishment. So, you know, Regis Progray is just getting back into the swing of things. So, you know, we'd have to see his timetable and whether or not he wants to immediately go into a rematch. Uh, because a second loss... Uh, in this day and age, unfortunately, is, is not yeah. a good position for a lot of fighters to be in. So there's no guarantee that Prograde would want to step in there right away. And uh, the risk for Josh Taylor's there is that, you know, he has three out of the four belts at 140. Not an easy feat to come by in this day and age. And uh, while he just signed with top rank, he'd be risking all three of those and a chance to unify all four against top ranks Jose Ramirez. 
uh, later this year. I hope that fight gets made. Uh, so that, that's just the present thinking of a lot of fighters and, you know, all yeah. this to consider that gets in the way of, of rematches uh, in a way that wasn't the case years back. Um, and uh, I, I guess it's just the culture, the millennial culture, I, I could blame it on <laughs> to some extent, you know, we're kind of uh, uh, just well, uh, thinking well, for immediate gratification and, you know, seeing the same thing a second time is, uh, is, is not necessarily immediate gratification uh, in terms of, you know, going forward and, you know, the next big thing, we want to see the next mesh of styles facing off. You know, we can watch on YouTube anytime we want the first fight, but, you know, when are we going to see something new? Uh, that That's probably why you don't see the same level of excitement for a Triple G Canelo 3, that kind of a rematch. Oh, where... my God. <laughs> because there that's, are there that's... are top-level boxing experts out there that aren't excited for it, and there's several, and... You know, it's it. Nobody says it. Nobody's saying it wouldn't be a great fight. It's just we've seen twenty-four mind. rounds of it. <laughs> well, it boggles the mind. I mean, I mean, that that second fight between uh, uh, Canelo and Golovkin—that's one of the best fights of the last several years. Yeah, I, mean, I don't see how anybody can dispute that. Why yeah. wouldn't you want to see a third fight between these two premier elite athletes while they're still, you know? In their that's, prime, that's the ar- that's the prime. argument though is the the decline of, well, the the struggle that Triple G had against Sergey Derevyanchenko, a very very close fight, a fight I thought he lost, you know, for Canelo fans and uh, just general boxing fans, they see that as uh, you know why why take the third fight? This is this is a fighter that uh, you know he's going to be a much bigger underdog going into the third fight than he ever was before. I don't think he had ever been an underdog against Canelo and people view it as a foregone conclusion and kind of a distraction from what Canelo's goal is uh, to be really, really. Yeah. Then why doesn't Canelo take the fight? You know, I, mean, <laughs> I, I, I got a little, he thinks he, could, he, he I mean, thinks he could make more money fighting guys like Callum Smith, the ring magazine, 168 pound champion. That's bullshit. You know, that's bullshit. If he fights Golovkin again, that will be the biggest payday of his career. DAZN wants that fight. Everybody wants that fight. They Everybody do want that fight. What? They do want that fight, yes. Yeah, yeah. It'll be the biggest payday of Canelo's career. And and he's 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 uh, created a very good bargaining position for himself. I mean uh I mean, come on. I don't I don't get this. I don't uh we don't need to see it. Oh, of course, uh, Canelo would win. Oh, it's a foregone conclusion. So, so Canelo, he is an attraction in the boxing world in this day and age. People don't see him to watch great competition as much as they would other fighters. He's viewed as, let's watch Canelo. He's the most talented fighter in the sport. That's how a lot of people view him, just as an attraction. Let's see him make history against Sergey Kovalev. Let's see him make history against X uh, super middleweight fighter uh let, let's hell let's see him go up to cruiserweight you know let's let's you know let's watch the canelo show let's not put him in against the toughest opposition let's because it doesn't matter to him it really people want to see uh him as an attraction more than they want to see him tested and that's just the superficial culture in our in our sport that uh hinders some of these great fights from taking place uh Unfortunately, it's driving a bit of a disconnect and a lot of controversy with, uh, you know, how fighters should manage their careers. That's just what I see. Well, all I got to say about that is 
we need to see the top fighters in this sport fight more than two times a year. So we do, and we need to see them fight the best fighters in their division, like we saw in many cases in 2019. The best fights of 2019 were when the best fought the best, often in unification fights. I'm talking Better Bia versus Vazdik. I'm yes. talking about Taylor yeah. versus Progre. I'm talking about Donaire versus Inouye. You know, there's no coincidence that all these fight of the year candidates that we have, and I'll, I can go through the list if you want. Most of them yeah. are unifications or clearly the two best fighters in the division. Thank um, God for the World Boxing Super Series. <laughs> Which a lot of fighters and managers have, uh, well, it's, it's no foregone conclusion that the every fighter in the division is going to be in that. I mean, hell, even Lucien Butte wasn't in the uh, original World Boxing Super Series at 168, unfortunately. You can't catch them all, I guess. But Earl Spence versus Sean Porter being another example. Uh, yeah, we need to see the unifications. That's yeah, well, there's no doubt. It's just, that's the people, best fights. Absolutely. Well, people forget there's there's a reason. I mean, this goes back, you know, more than a century now. There's a reason why you have a champion, and then you have rankings, which determine who the top contenders are. The reason you have that mechanism in place is it's it's supposed to ensure healthy. Uh, cutthroat competition, you know, the best fighting the best on a frequent basis, on a regular basis. And the best, the best fighters, they get the biggest paydays because, of course, they're taking the biggest risks and they're engaging in the fights that the people really want to see and are willing to put their money down to see. I mean, that's, that's how it's supposed to work. So, yeah, 21st, 21st century boxing... It's a bit of a disappointment in so many ways. Um, but uh, but despite that, as you say, we saw some great fights in 2019. And here's hoping we, you know, here's hoping the World Boxing Super Series keeps going. And here's hoping we see some more great fights in 2020. Yeah, I definitely hope so. Uh, speaking of nostalgia, I got a chance to sit down with former trainer of Sugar Ray Leonard, Lennox Lewis, Simon Brown, and Maurice Blocker, all four legendary champions. Pepe Correa, he trains out of the... Good for train- you, Alden. <laughs> Why, thank you. Oh, that's a coup. That's a coup. You got the, an interview with one of the premier trainers of the last few decades. He, uh, he is a D.C. local. Uh, he trains boxers, young boxers, out of Sugar Ray Leonard Boxing Gym where he originally trained uh, Sugar Ray Leonard uh, more or less from the very start. He even trained Sugar Ray Leonard's brother, Roger Leonard, who he actually claims uh, was more talented than Ray, uh, coincidentally. Wow. Um, More to come in a later article that I'll publish a little bit later on uh, about the historical take that he gave us on many fighters' careers, including Lennox Lewis, uh, including Simon Brown, uh, and some little-known facts about Sugar Ray Leonard, but we'll take it, uh, we'll shift gears to my interview with him on when he talks about the present day and uh, his takes on what has changed over the years in the sport. Let's shift to the current day and age. Uh, What are some of the big differences you see in the fight game today as opposed to back when Sugar Ray Leonard was on top of the sport in the 80s? The big difference today? 
Uh, those kids are getting a whole lot of money that they don't deserve, and they're pushing them too fast. You know, back when, you had guys that stayed around 100, 100, 200 fights, and these are professionals. Um, and I was looking something on the internet this morning, how many guys, how many fights different guys had, including the run, Archie Moore, 200, and all that kind of stuff. Today, they rush them in for that money. Yeah, the money's big, uh, but they move, them, they move them wrong. If you move a guy properly, he's going to stay around and win a whole bunch of titles, not just a couple million dollars get knocked and come back and get knocked off by, by some bum. Um, too much money involved. and Give him too much money up front. I don't care how much you pay him. You can pay him $30 million. I don't care about that. But in the start of a guy's career, don't give him all that money because then he think he gets to the point he don't want to listen to the trainers. He's the boss. He wants to run stuff. And like I tell any guy in the gym, any fight I ever work with, if you're going to run business, you don't want me. Guys say one time, man, Ray Lennon's going to fire you, man, the way you talk to him. I say, so be it. Because that's the way I used to talk to him sometimes. What the fuck I asked you to do? Did I, you do this. I asked you to do, this, do that. And he go out and do that. I know J.D. Brown said one time, man, Ray, man, you, man, Ray going to fire you. I said, I don't care. I'm not going to kiss ass. I came here to get him ready for a fight. I came to give him what I had in my head, and I had plenty. Because not only did uh, Ray Leonard sit down and watch tapes and learn from stuff, believe it or not, I did too. Who did, sir? I also learned when I watch a Ray Robinson, okay, when I watch a Archie Moore and those guys, I learned something too. <laughs> did you also learn? In today's fight game, uh, if we were to go 20 years from now, who do you think is going to leave the biggest lasting impression uh, for people of future generations? Andrew Wood. Oh, Andre Ward. Andre Ward. Andre Ward. Here's a fighter, undefeated, retired, undefeated, could adapt to anything that you do in the ring. Gift. Oh, this boy was something. Andre Ward was nothing but the truth. Uh, it could adapt to anything that you put in front of him. Um, look at this guy. I mean, stay behind the jab. No one go to the body. He could come inside and fight you. He could stay outside and fight you. But he was smart. Always smart. Don't take anything away from Roberto Duran. Smart as hell. Take nothing away from Better not take nothing from Ray Leonard. Speed and power. Movement. Okay? A lot of guys want to stand and bang these days. You don't bang with a banger. And he learned that when he fought Duran the first time. And after that, you never saw him bang with anyone. Um, who do you think the best pound-for-pound pound fighter in the world today is? Pound for pound? Yeah. I like that young Mexican. Um, Canelo Alvarez? Canelo. I love him as a fighter. Now, there's one more fighter. I can't think of his name right now. That little young Russian that come out of there. He's that, mean. Better be a... Yeah, no. No, the other one. Um, the, no, the Russian kid. Um, I can't think of his name right now. I'll tell you something else. Lomachenko? Yes. Yep. Yes, Lomachenko. Terrence... Okay. Yeah, Ukrainian. Okay. Terrence Crawford. A beast. He, Terrence Crawford is a beast. Now, I do, I do not want to see he and Romanchenko hook up. Because somebody gets hurt in that fight real bad. Yeah. So, um, in terms of Terrence Crawford, Lomachenko, Canelo Alvarez, is there some flashback uh, deja vu that you see when you look at their styles and what you think they might have emulated over the years? Terrence Crawford, that's a Ray Leonard. He just don't have the speed as a Ray but he has the power right now. Um, Roman Schenko. 
You can tell he had a lot of amateur fights because he brings that to the table. 397 amateur He fight. is the sweetest fighter I've seen in my life. And he breaks you down. He breaks you down round by round. He know how to break you down. Okay? So what is... Uh what are you looking forward to the most in the coming year? Is there any fight or, um, or any, any event that you're really looking forward to? What I would like to see people do in the coming years is to get kids in, gym, in gyms and train them from A, B, C, right on down the line. If a kid don't know how to step with a jab, you don't let them get in the ring. If a kid don't know how to throw a right hand or left hook, you don't get them in the ring. These days, they're rushing these kids. And I don't mind saying this. You got a lot of fighters, right? A lot of trainers here in the world today. Even in this gym here, I couldn't teach a dog to piss on a tree. And that's bad. So, therefore, you have to have somebody to train the trainers. When I was in California, all the guys that I had out there, I trained my own trainers. And that's why those guys went so far. Because if it, it was my way or the highway. You know, a lot of guys say, I was pushy. No, I wasn't pushy. I wanted, if you had a guy and he had his foot all turned all stupid, you know, and didn't know how to step proper with his jab, you don't, you don't need to be a trainer. So I asked him. Favors, there's a lot of talk that Deontay Wilder is up on the list of the greatest heavyweight punchers in history. Where do you rank him? I don't rank him nowhere near no damn Ernie Shavers. I don't rank him near Joe Lewis. He's too wild. Oh, he's, yeah. he's, he's a slap. He, can he punch? Yes. But he's a slapper. Oh, yeah. You know, everything coming from left field. You don't know where the hell they're coming from. Now, his trainer was a better boxer than he is. Mark Breland. Mark Breland was a hell of a fighter, man. And Wilder just come along at the right time. A big boy got power and lucky. The Cuban who fought him, had the Cuban get jumped dead on him, he had him. But if you're not in shape, you can't jump on the guy. He wasn't in shape. And I could see that. You took, look at Ruiz, who just fought the guy from England. He was not in shape. He way overweight. Why? Because they gave him too much money. He wanted to be the man. And he admitted it to myself that he said, man, I, I messed up. He said, I should have listened. I should have not tried to train myself. You can't run your camp.